welcome, we especially welcome our guests with us here this morning. Uh, some of you know that I used to play golf a lot uh, when I was in college and before and then a little bit after until a really good mentor of mine as we were playing golf together told me, Gary, he took me aside, he told me, Gary, you should take two weeks off and then quit. <laughs> and, and I did take, I took his advice and my stress level was reduced tremendously and uh, it was good, but uh, during those times, when we lived in Dallas, Texas, we, uh, were give, we had a friend in our church who worked for a big corporation, and she gave us free tickets to the Byron Nelson Golf Classic out at Las Colinas. And uh, so we took, packed up our family on a Saturday, and drove, you drove to what was then Texas Stadium and parked and caught a shuttle out to the golf course. And uh, we chose to follow Chichi Rodriguez and Lee Trevino around. That's how long ago this was. I looked them up. Those guys are not only senior citizens now, they are ancient. So that's a long time ago. But anyway, uh, they were great entertainment and amazing golfers. And I've always wondered as I watch golf on TV, when they're waiting the tee off and they're standing around talking to each other, leaning on their drivers, what are they talking about? You know, obviously they talk about golf, but I snuck up close and I think this is what I heard. Uh, They were having a conversation on one of the uh, tees there. And uh, one of them asked, what would you like people to say at your funeral? And I don't remember which one, but uh, this one said, well, I would like to hear them say that I was a great humanitarian and I cared for my community. And then the other one replied, I want people to know that he was a great husband and a father, an example for many to follow. And then one of the caddies chimed in and said, this is what I would want to hear. Look, he's moving. (laughs) You know, actually, he, he, he did uh, really pinpoint something that Jesus deals with in this passage in John. And it's the great enemy we call death. It's the, mo- the fact of our own mortality as human beings and uh, the issue of hope, the issue of hope. It has been said, now I have not uh, checked this out to see if it's true, but it has been said that human beings, we human beings, can live 40 days without food four days without water, and four minutes without air. But we cannot live four seconds without hope. And uh, I think there's some truth to that, whether or not it is an accurate statement or not. But uh, trouble seems to abound, and we need hope. We desperately need hope. And sadly, much in the world offers us hope, but they are empty promises. In fact, the world offers us promises that are full of emptiness, When you look at it, and yet, because of Jesus Christ and Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, that offers us emptiness full of promise when you think of the empty tomb. And so we come to this passage today, and the disciples are greatly troubled, as you notice, as Jesus calms their fears. And I remember, and I think about Job chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. Remember Job. Often, many people think the book of Job, one of the earliest in the Old Testament, is about suffering, and yes, it does reveal the common plight of human beings that we do suffer in this life, Uh, and yet it really is a book about faith. That's the central proposition of Job, is faith in the Almighty God, and in chapter 5 of that uh, book of Job, one of his friends, Eliphaz, speaks and says, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. 
I think of that passage every time we're sitting around a campfire and the, the wood is popping and the sparks are going upward. I think that man is born for trouble. And there is a sense in which there is adversity and difficulty in all of our lives. If we were to be, go around the room and, and ask each one, what is uh, the set of circumstances you are dealing with today or this week or this year? And I'm sure we could hear many, many stories of adversity and difficulty because that's the human condition. And so there's got to be something beyond our human condition, our circumstances, that brings great hope. Life is very difficult, uh, just like Jesus' disciples here in John chapter 14. They are shell-shocked and brokenhearted because uh, they have just been like waves rolling in on a shore, just hit time and time again. We have been looking for a number of weeks at just some select passages out of the Gospel of John about what Jesus says about himself. And of course, we led up to Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, and this will be the the last one, kind of a follow-up from an Easter series. Uh, But the Gospel of John, quite profound, even though it's very simple in its language and the way John wrote it. But in this passage, if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll be able to see that there's a very long discourse beginning in chapter 13, or a teaching that Jesus is doing goes through chapter 17. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. They have celebrated the Passover together. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, and he's talked about a number of things, and he continues to do so. But the disciples are in great distress. In fact, if you look at your copy of Scripture, chapter 14 of John, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why were they troubled? Well, back in chapter 13, Jesus has revealed to them that one of them would deceive him or betray him. And, of course, that was Judas in chapter 13, verse 21. You know, when our hope is crushed, it usually is because bad news comes in threes. Uh, That's what my grandmother used to say, bad news comes in threes. Uh, So they have just heard that Judas or one of them is going to deceive the Lord Jesus Christ, which is unthinkable to them, the close-knit group of twelve. And then in chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus is very clear and very plainly told them that he is going to depart. Not only will he be deceived by one of them, but he is going to leave. He is going to depart. And chapter 13, verse 38, the capstone to the bad news is that Peter will deny him. And, of course, Peter vehemently denies that, that he would do that. He just argues against it, but Jesus, in his exhaustive foreknowledge, and uh, being God himself knows what's going to happen. And so those things are coming in threes, this bad news. And Jesus gives his disciples some directions in this passage in chapter 14, probably very familiar to most of us. And uh, John 14 is a great comfort. Uh, It's used often in memorial services, and yet we need to look at it today that it talks about our great hope and how we can find that hope. And so John, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, Christ is giving his disciples, and thereby by extension, for we have the word of God here today, directions to his home in heaven. It's always nice to have directions. I always tell my wife that we men never get lost, we only get confused. And I think Daniel Boone said that. He said, I've never been lost, but I've been mighty confused for two or three days. And my wife can attest that I've been mighty confused many times. Uh, but I never admit to being lost. And yet we do know, we do enjoy and appreciate directions. And Christ is telling in unmistakable terms how to get to where he's going 
And no one has put it any clearer than Jesus has done in this very passage. And first of all, there is peace for the troubled heart. If you're here today and you have a troubled heart, one that's in distress because of life, circumstances, adversities, difficulties, losses that all of us experience, and yet you may feel it very sharply here today. You need to know that there is peace for the troubled heart. Jesus addresses the reality of our tendency to be in trouble, to have distress in our lives. In that first verse, it says, do not let your heart be troubled. Of course, the heart is a, is a metaphor for our living being, for what generates our emotion, intellect, and will. It's the very soul in the Hebrew mindset of who and what we are when he refers to the heart. Oftentimes, we refer to the heart as this uh, physical feature that pumps blood through the body, and yes, it is that, but we also talk about my heart hurts, or my heart is broken, or my heart rejoices, and it speaks about our total being. And so he, rejo- he addresses the reality of our tendency in trouble. That word trouble or distress, depending upon what version you're using, is an interesting word. It occurs elsewhere of Jesus himself. In John, in chapter John, uh, chapter 11, verse 33, remember Lazarus had died and was put in the grave, and it tells us that Jesus was greatly troubled. It's the same word. And it talks about a deep emotional grief, a deep emotional grief. In chapter 12, verse 27, where he tells the disciples that someone is going to, that he's going to leave, that he's going to depart, he is troubled in spirit. And that's the same idea. Then Jesus again in chapter 13, verse 21, where he reveals that he will be betrayed. He will be deceived by one of their own. He is deeply troubled again. He is experiencing and relating to this deep, desperate thing. So I call it the four Ds, the four Ds, the four letter Ds. We become disturbed, we may become discouraged, downcast, and depressed. And then there's a fifth one, we may live in despair when things seem hopeless. And so what is the antidote to this despair? What is the antidote to this being disturbed, discouraged, downcast, and depressed? And in this despair that people live in from time to time, in chapter 1, Jesus gives us the antidote. Uh, I told you last week we have a new dog in the house, a new puppy, and they give them rattlesnake shots. So in case they're bit, they won't, you know, succumb to the snake bite. And it's a two-part antidote. And uh, our little dog, not so little, but the dog got the second shot Friday. Uh, But here's the antidote for that desperation, that despair that perhaps you're feeling today. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Two times he used the word believe, and in the original languages, uh, that word can either mean a command, the way it's the form of that word, the structure of that word, can either mean a statement of fact or a command. So it could come across in some of your versions as believe in God as a command, believe also in me as a command. It also can be translated in other versions. Some other translators have chosen to believe it. you believe in God, in other words, a statement of fact, which is, to bore you with grammar, indicative form, so believe in me. That's the imperative or the command form. I choose to believe that because I believe that all of these uh, disciples he's redressing here believe in God. So he says, as you believe in God, believe also in me. He's calling us to belief, and belief is something that we cannot manufacture, It is given to us, our faith is given to us by God. 
So faith, uh, J. Hudson Taylor, who was the pioneer missionary into mainland China, you may have heard of him or read some of his books or some books about him, a great missionary uh, that is uh, greatly championed in the missions movement. Uh, he writes that faith needs adequate grounding. In other words, uh, just because we have faith that the moon is made out of cheese doesn't mean that's really going to happen that way. And we have to have accurate physical uh, facts to believe in things. Faith needs adequate grounding. However, this is Taylor goes on to say, if it is to experience serenity and overcome the troubled hearts of the disciples, it needs adequate grounding. The effectiveness and strength of faith are bound up with the greatness and dependability of the God in whom the faith resides. Have faith in God means hold God's faithfulness. I don't know if you think much about God's faithfulness. Uh, we often are focused on our own faithfulness and our own faith, and yet God is absolutely faithful uh, as he has carrying out his perfect plan. That always staggers me because from my limited, finite viewpoint, I look at the world situation and think, really? Is this the best plan? <laughs> and, and yet God being infinite and sovereign and knowing all things and being absolutely holy, making no mistakes, knew all potential plans when he created the universe, and this is the one that he chose as his best and holiest plan. And we will see that in the consummation of the age when all things are made right. So Jesus accordingly relates and he grounds his disciples' faith by showing them here in this paragraph the fact that there is hope and that there is a way to travel, something to be really glad about. So there is that uh, <clears throat> There is that. Play peace for the troubled heart, and that's what he's concerned about with his disciples. In verses 2 and 3, there is the promise for the troubled heart, the promise for the troubled heart. Look at verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Promises for the troubled heart. First of all, Jesus Christ is the dwelling place. Uh, somebody asked me, where is heaven? And uh, in fact, there's been this argument that when Jesus ascended after resurrection from the grave and 50 days later, uh, he was resurrected. Uh, he went to heaven. They said, even if he traveled at the speed of light, even if, because he had a physical body, remember, Jesus rose with a physical body. He had the nail prints in his hand. He ate, but it was different. It was a glorified body. But even if he traveled at the speed of light, he would yet to have been gone beyond the uh, boundaries of the universe by now. He wouldn't have been that far. And uh, one person said, responded, I read about, this is an argument that goes on in the past, said, well, why limit God to the speed of light? You know, he can just have a thought and it'll be there. He can say a word and it'll be there. Just like creation, he said a word and it was created out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. So this promise, Jesus is our dwelling place. The emphasis as you read the gospel of John, when you read about salvation or about eternal life, in John, the emphasis is on the present reality of eternal life. We often think of eternal life as life after death. It's something way in the future. And yet, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is a present reality. I know, I know, some days it doesn't feel like it. And yet, 
That is the grasp that we have by belief and by faith because he tells us it is so. The Father's house is an interesting passage. Some of, If you use the King James Version, it talks about mansions here, and that's attributed to William Tyndale in his translation way back uh, in the 1500s. Uh, it's really a dwelling place is the best translation of that term, or houses, uh, but it's really a dwelling place, and it refers to a permanent dwelling. It's not something that we're going to uh, live and then leave. It is a permanent dwelling place. I've said that the house we live in now is the longest I've ever lived in one house in my life. And uh, it just boggles my mind because I've never lived this long in a certain house. And that house is, uh, you know, 1976 vintage. It's got sticks and stones and it's, you know, it's always needing work. It's always needing something. But these dwelling places are permanent. And it says in the Father's house. Jesus earlier in chapter uh, 2, verse 16, he talks about the Father's house and about his body being the Father's house in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And then he talks in chapter 8, verse 35, about the fact that a slave in a household in that day and age in that culture would not stay in the house all the time, but a son would, would forever live in the house. And his point was is that this body, Jesus Christ, is the dwelling place. And we are with him, the present reality of eternal life. That's why the Apostle Paul talks about being in Christ. And so wherever heaven is, that's where Jesus is. And that's the point here. And he speaks of this dwelling place. It's the promise. And then he speaks with absolute honesty. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. And that is one of the fundamental struggles we have as human beings is do we really believe what God is telling us? When everything else in our experience and in the world militates against that and we, we start to lose faith. And yet he says that, do you believe me? This is absolute honesty. If it were not so, I would have told you so. And then he also functions. Look at verse 3, the beginning of verse 3 again. He is our forerunner, a forerunner. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. It's an interesting word there. One of the uh, key theological terms in the New Testament is this word forerunner that's used here. And the Greek word is prodomus, and pro means before, and he's the runner, the dromus, prodromus. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, it tells us that where Jesus is entered as the forerunner before us, having become a high priest forever. And uh, he is a forerunner. Uh, the authorized version and revised standard versions translate it forerunner, just like I've been talking about. Uh, but it talks about it's a picture of those who go out before the rest. In, in uh, Roman times, the Roman army would have kodomoi, which were a reconnaissance troop. They went out ahead of the main body of the army to blaze the trail and assure that it was safe for the rest of the troops to follow. Also in the harbor of Alexandria, Egypt in those days, uh, the great ships would come in laden with, uh, with uh, corn and other things, and a little pilot boat was sent out to guide them through the channel into the waters of that port, and that's what that little boat was called, the forerunner. It was making it safe for them to follow, and that's what Jesus said. He has blazed the way to heaven and to God the Father that we might follow in his steps, so he is our forerunner. He's gone before us. And it's always nice, you know, anytime 
I have traveled internationally. I've always wanted to be with somebody who was there before. So, you know, that I wouldn't get lost. I wouldn't make goof-ups and all of that. And so it's nice. Like when we went to Macau in 2012 in Hong Kong, Paul and Diana were our forerunner. They had lived there. They had been there. They knew what to see, what to do, how to act, how, what things to eat and what things not to eat. And uh, so it, was, it just brings great peace. So Jesus is our forerunner. He's been to heaven. He is heaven. He will bring ultimate triumph. I will come again and receive you to myself. You know, history is moving to consummation. It is moving to a completion, uh, and history must have that. And the triumph of Christ is that consummation. And he promises that the day of his triumph, he will welcome his friends. He talks about returning at the second coming. Jesus' presence provides our everlasting dwelling, that where I am, you may be also, he says. And so it's the simplest way to say it is, where is heaven? It's wherever Jesus is, and we can trust him for that. You know, when you think about it, when we love someone else, whether it's a a boyfriend, girlfriend, a spouse, a child, a parent, whatever, when we love someone with our old heart, with our whole heart, we are alive really when we are with that person, right? We love to be with them. We want to be with them. It is so with Christ. Uh, Our world is a shadowy place, and yet we have great comfort and and blessing when we know that Jesus is with us also. In verse 5, Thomas, and I think Thomas always gets a bad rap. You know, he's called Doubting Thomas, but yet he had the courage to speak up. Verse 5, he said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And, uh, you know, Thomas, uh, we have to give these uh, disciples that follow Jesus, you know, they, they had no experience with this. We read back into the Word, and we know a lot, know more than Thomas did. And uh, so, yet, uh, he was an honest follower, and he may have been a little skeptical. And yet, Jesus' response in verse 6 is the key to this whole passage, where he tells us that he is the way, which means reconciliation. We are reconciled. That means two opposing parties are brought in reconciliation. We were enemies of God, the word tells us. Essentially, we were uh, cursing and shaking our fist in God's face. Uh, maybe you were five years old and you didn't realize that, but yet we were all born uh, totally depraved. So Jesus is the reconciler. He's reconciled us to God, the Father. He is the truth. He illumines us. He teaches us. He gives us understanding of what life is really about. And he is regeneration. He regenerates us. He gives us new life. That's the exclusive gospel. And so in chapter Uh, 14 verse 6 where he said I am and remember those I am statements are echoes of Exodus chapter 3 where Moses in asking God at the burning bush you know God has told him go go lead the people out of captivity in Egypt and he says well what if they don't listen to me and who do I say sent me and God simply says tell them I am that I am sent you and that is the very fundamental perfect name of God And Jesus is claiming it for himself here. And it was not missed on the ears of his audience in the first century. These Jewish people knew exactly he was claiming equality with God. And, of course, unless they believed in him, they were greatly disturbed by his words. So this is the path to everlasting liberation. Jesus Christ is the way. He said, I am the way. Uh, In fact, uh, the way was a very... Uh, apparent in scripture in Job chapter 23 Job says but he knows the way that I take 
When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. This metaphor of traveling down a trail or a highway. Psalm 27:11. teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in the level path because of my foes. Proverbs 10, 29. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but a ruin to the words of iniquity. In the book of Acts, in the New Testament, in fact, the early church was called the way before they were called Christians in Acts 9, Acts 19, and so on. And so Jesus says, I am the way. In my vehicle, I have a GPS thingy. And, you know, you can set the voice in it, and I have mine set to a, British, a woman with a British accent. I just think that's neat. And uh, so I'll, you know, the reason I have a GPS is so I can find my way to Wenatchee or Soap Lake. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. But once in a while, I do go to Spokane or Seattle, and uh, it's nice to have a GPS to tell you, and you set in the address that will tell you how to get there. But if you get off track. In fact, I try to fool the little British lady in my GPS, and she gets angry with me. You know, she, turn, turn, turn. You know, you're going the wrong way. Turn. And the little voice in that box keeps telling me I'm going the wrong way. And uh, so, but there are many ways, like when we travel over to Montana, there are many highways. In fact, we could go up through Canada and back if we had the time, or down through Idaho and up, and all sorts of ways. And yet, Jesus says, I am the way. Why does he say, I am the way? Because he alone is the way. In the great Reformation, Martin Luther and one of the great five solas of the, uh, of the Reformation was sola Christus, which is Latin for Christ alone. And they knew very well that there was no other way. Jesus Christ alone is the way. Jesus not, is not merely one who has shown men the way. He is the way. Yes, it's interesting. He's our forerunner. He's gone before us, but yet he is the way. It is de his death, resurrection, and ascension that he makes a way for men to spend eternity with God in heaven. I don't know if you spend much time thinking about eternity. Uh, I try to, and my mind is too small. It's too finite. Eternity just, you know, it's just too much. Uh, I cannot imagine it, and yet we are promised that he alone is the only way God has provided for men to obtain forgiveness for our sins and the gift of eternal life. He alone provides the map. He is the one who provides the map. I think of uh, the, the play and then the film Fiddler on the Roof. And if you remember that, that musical, you remember Tevye, and he's always singing about tradition. And, of course, as a, as a good Jewish person, tradition was important. And without tradition, his world was falling apart, and that's part of the story of that whole play and that, that movie is that his whole world is falling apart because traditions are going by the wayside. And Israel had its own identifying signs, its own traditions, and we all have our traditions, and they're like road signs. When we go out down I-90 and the exit we're looking for, there's a big sign, and it tells us to exit. It is a sign, and there were signs in Israel uh, that uh, confirmed who the people were, and then it told the outside world who they were. The sign that one was related to Father Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. Another sign was that they were related to Moses and the Mosaic law was Sabbath observance on uh, the sixth day. And then the sign that one was related to John the baptizer, John the baptizer was the last of the Old Testament prophets, essentially, 
and one that was uh, a sign that you were related to John the Baptizer's message was uh, about the Messiah coming was the baptism of repentance, uh, which was unique to John the Baptist. These external signs all indicated a relationship with a particular movement in Israel. And Christ gave his disciples a new identifying sign. And today we have well-worn paths, and yet Christ cuts across those paths. You know, it's always easier to stay on the path, in the rut, if you will, and yet Christ cuts across all those things. Jesus alone provides the map. And Jesus Christ is the way. Why is he the way? Why does that matter? Why would anyone want to follow his way? Because he says he is the truth. Secondly, he is the truth. Again, he alone is the truth. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. I was reading a story, I think it was in National Geographic, about <clears throat> a study they were doing of uh, albatrosses in Japan. And they placed 100 decoys, they were wooden decoys, out on this peninsula in Japan to attract these endangered albatrosses and encourage them to breed. And the researchers noticed that for more than two years, there was a five-year-old albatross that they had named Deco. He tried to woo a wooden decoy by building fancy nests around her, fighting off rival suitors. He spent his days standing faithfully by its side. And the Japanese researchers said, uh, talking about this albatross's infatuation with the wooden decoy, he said, he seems to have no desire to date real birds. <laughs> you know, and so it is with uh, people who put their affections upon the gods of this world instead of placing their love in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all decoys, if you will. Jesus alone defines the truth. You know, there are hundreds of worldviews out there, maybe thousands of the way people look at their environment, their world, and their belief system. We call those worldviews. Hundreds of religions, if you will. H.A. Ironside, who was a great preacher and evangelist in the last century, uh, he occasionally was interrupted during his sermons uh, with the objection that, oh, you're wrong, there's hundreds of ways to God, and no one could determine which one was the right way. Harry Ironside would answer by indicating that he knew of only two religions. One, he would say, covers all those who expect salvation by doing the other is all those who have been saved by something that was done for them. The whole question is very simple. Can you save yourself or must you be saved by another? Jesus alone is the way. Jesus is the way because he is the truth. And Jesus is the way because he is the life. The life. Psalm 139.24 says, See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The way of everlasting things is what the Hebrew is conveying there. This is essentially a prayer which says, Lord, enable me to have to do with the things that will last and not fritter away my time on things that are only of transitory value. Perhaps we need that in our daily lives, especially some of the odd minutes that we find ourselves in. Jesus is the life. He alone is the life. Jesus alone provides life. Rick Warren, a pastor down in and writer down in California, says that there are only two ways in the Bible that tell you that how you get to heaven. Plan A is to earn it. That's called the performance plan. And to earn it, you only have to do this. And here's the qualifications for plan A. Never sin, 
Always do what's right for the entire time that you live. In other words, just be perfect. And then he goes on to say, none of us qualify for plan A. Uh, God came up with plan B, which is this. You trust Jesus Christ when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was the only perfect person who ever lived because he is God. He came so that we could know what God is like, and by trusting and establishing a relationship with him, you get in not on your goodness, but on his righteousness. He talks about a friend of his who took his young son to a carnival, a local carnival for his birthday, and he was able to pick out six of his friends to go to the carnival with him. And he bought a roll of tickets, the father did, and every time they'd come up uh, to a new ride, he'd pull off seven tickets and give them all to the little kids. And they'd get on the Ferris wheel and they'd get on the merry-go-round and so on. And all of a sudden, there was an eighth little kid in line with his hand out too. And uh, the dad said, who are you? And the little boy said, I'm Johnny. And uh, who are you, Johnny? Johnny said, I'm your son's new friend. (laughs) And he said, would you give me a ticket? And uh, the father said, absolutely, I'll give you a ticket. And the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, he adopts us into sonship. Uh, In this passage, Jesus gives us a threefold assurance. How can I be saved? He is the way. How can I be sure? He is the truth. How can I be satisfied? He is the life. He gives us hope in the midst of despair and trouble. Uh, A final illustration of this. Charles Blondin, I think it's Blondin or maybe Blondine. He was a French uh, tightrope walker who wowed the country in the 1860s. But he was the one who was, I think, the first to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls, some 11,000 feet, 160 feet in the air. Not only did he tightrope walk across, he pushed a wheelbarrow across with potatoes in the wheelbarrow. He took a stove out into the middle and cooked an omelet on the tightrope. And he's also the one that asked the crowd, do you believe that I could carry a person across Niagara Falls? Everybody raised their hands. Then he asked for a volunteer, and of course, nobody did, although eventually his manager did, and I'm sure his manager asked for about a 30% raise after that one. But one of the keys when he would do the Niagara Falls tightrope walk is one of the secrets is that he had erected a silver star at the other end, and he would keep his eyes fixed upon the large silver star at the far end. And he gave gave him his attention so he could reach the other side. So as you run the race this year in your life, whatever you face, are you following the way, the truth, and the life? And notice that Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes to the Father but through me. By belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Dr. James Gray said, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? And for believers in Jesus Christ, we're on the road that leads home. Heavenly Father, thank you for today and thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, we thank you that uh, you are working constantly and consistently in each one of our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, for those who don't yet know you as Savior, I pray for their salvation, that they would recognize that for eternity in heaven, all they have to do is believe in you for eternal life, and you will accomplish what needs to be accomplished. 
Thank you that you're with us today. Thank you for each one. In Jesus' name, amen.